Section 24 of Yiddish Tales. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Yiddish Tales translated by Helena Frank and read by Adrian Pretzelis. Section 24. Micha Yosef Bachevsky. Born, 1865, in Bashad, Padalia, southwestern Russia. Educated in Yeshiva of Volozin, studied also modern literatures in his youth, has been living alternately in Berlin and Breslau. Hebrew, Yiddish, and German writer on philosophy, aesthetics, and Jewish literary and spiritual and timely questions. Contributor to Hebrew publications. Editor of Beit Midrash. Supplement to Beit Ozar Hasifrut. Uber den Zusammenhang zwischen Ethik und Ästhetik zu Berner Studien zur Philosophie und ihrer Geschichte. Author of two novels, Mibait Umihutz and Mahanaim, a book on the Hasidim, Warsaw, 1900, Jüdische Ketobim, Wunderweiten Korov, Warsaw, Hebrew essays on miscellaneous studies, eleven parts, Warsaw and Breslau, in course of publication. Military Service by Micha Yosef Bachevsky They look as if they've had enough of me, so I think to myself, as I give a glance at my two great top boots, my wide trousers, and my shabby green uniform, in which there is no whole part left. I take a bit of looking-glass out of my box and look at my reflection. Yes, the military cap on my head is a beauty, and no mistake, as big as Og, King of Bashan, and as bent and crushed as though it had been sat on for years together. Under the cap appears a small, washed-out face, yellow and wizened, with two large black eyes that look at me somewhat wildly. I don't recognize myself. I remember me in a grey jacket, narrow, close-fitting trousers, a round hat, and a healthy complexion. I can't make out where I have got those big eyes, why they shine so, why my face should be yellow and my nose pointed. Yet I know that it is I, myself, Chaim Blumin, and no other, that I have been handed over for a soldier and have to serve only two years and eight months, and not three years and eight months, because I have a certificate to the effect that I have been through the first four classes in a secondary school. Although I know quite well that I am to serve only two years and eight months, I feel the same as though it were to be for ever. I can't somehow believe that my time will some day expire, and that I shall once more be free. I've tried from the very beginning not to play any tricks, to do my duty and obey orders, so that they should not say, a Jew won't work, a Jew is too lazy. And though I am let off manual labour because I am on privileged rights, still, if they tell me to go and clean the windows, or polish the flooring with sand, or clear away the snow from the door, I make no fuss and go. I wash and clean and polish, and try to do the work well so that they should find no fault with me. They haven't yet ordered me to carry pails of water. Why should I not confess it? The idea of having to do that rather frightens me. 
When I look at the vessel in which the water is carried, my heart begins to flutter. The vessel is almost as big as I am, and I couldn't lift it, even if it were empty. I often think, what shall I do if to-morrow or the day after they wake me at three in the morning and say coolly, Get up, Bloomin', and go with Ossachok to fetch a pail of water. You ought to see my neighbour, Ossachok. He looks as if he could squash me with one finger. It is as easy for him to carry a pail of water as to drink a glass of brandy. How can I compare myself with him? I don't really care if it makes my shoulder swell, if I could only carry the thing. I shouldn't mind about that. But God in heaven knows the truth, that I won't be able to lift that pail off the ground. Only they won't believe me. They will say, Look at the lazy Jew pretending he is a poor creature that can't lift a pail. There, I mind that more than anything. I don't suppose they will send me to fetch water, for after all I am on privileged rights, but I can't sleep in peace. I dream all night that they are waking me at three o'clock, and I start up, bathed in a cold sweat. Trill does not begin before eight in the morning, but they wake us at six, so that we will have time to clean our rifles, polish our boots and leather girdle, brush our coat, and furbish the brass buttons with chalk so that they should shine like mirrors. I don't mind getting up early. I'm used to rising long before daylight, but I'm always worrying lest something shouldn't be properly cleaned, and they should say that a Jew is so lazy he doesn't care if his things are clean or not, that he's afraid of touching his rifle, and pay me the other compliments of the kind. I clean and polish and rub everything all I know, but my rifle always seems in worse condition than the other men's. I can't make it look the same as theirs. Do what I will, and the head of my division, a corporal, shouts at me, calls me a greasy fellow, and says he'll have me up before the authorities, because I don't take care of my arms. But there is worse than the rifle, and that is the uniform. Mine is years old. I'm sure it's older than I am. Every day little pieces fall out of it, and the buttons tear themselves out of the cloth, dragging bits of it after them. I've never had a needle in my hand in all my life before, and now I sit whole nights and patch and sew on buttons. And next morning, when the corporal takes hold of a button and gives a pull to see if it's firmly sewn, a pang goes through my heart. The button is dragged out, and a piece of uniform follows. Another whole night's work for me. After the inspection they drive us out into the yard and teach us to stand. It must be done so that our stomachs fall in and our chests stick out. I am half as one ought to be, because my stomach is flat enough anyhow, only my chest is weak and narrow, and also flat, flat as a board. The corporal squeezes in my stomach with his knee pulls me forward by the flaps of my coat, but it's no use. He loses his temper and calls me a greasy fellow, screams again that I'm pretending, that I won't serve, and this makes my chest fall in even more than ever. I like the gymnastics. In summer we go out early into the yard, which is very wide and covered with thick grass. It smells delightfully. The sun warms us through. It feels so pleasant. 
The breeze blows in from the fields. I open my mouth and swallow the freshness. And however much I swallow, it's not enough. I should like to take in all the air there is. Then perhaps I should cough less and grow a little stronger. We throw off the old uniforms and remain in our shirts. We run and leap and go through all sorts of performances with our hands and feet, and it's splendid. At home I never had so much as an idea of such fun. At first I was very much afraid of jumping across the ditch, but I resolved once and for all, I've got to jump it. If the worst comes to the worst, I shall fall and bruise myself. Suppose I do, what then? Why do all the others jump it and don't care? One needn't be so very strong to jump. And one day, before the gymnastics had begun, I left my comrades, took heart and a long run, and when I came to the ditch I made a great bound, and, lo and behold, I was over on the other side. I couldn't believe my own eyes that I had done it so easily. Ever since then I have jumped across ditches and over mounds and down from mounds as well as any of them. Only when it comes to climbing a ladder or swinging myself over a high bar, I know it spells misfortune for me. I spring forward and seize the first rung with my right hand, but I cannot reach the second with my left. I stretch myself and kick out with my feet, but I cannot reach any higher, not by so much as of a shock. And so there I hang, and kick with my feet, till my right arm begins to tremble and hurt me. My head goes round, and I fall on the grass. The corporal abuses me as usual, and the soldiers laugh. I would give ten years of my life to be able to get higher, if only three or four rungs, but what can I do if my arms won't serve me? Sometimes I go out to the ladder by myself while the soldiers are still asleep, and stand and look at it. Perhaps I can think of a way to manage. But in vain, thinking, you see, doesn't help you in these cases. Sometimes they tell one of the soldiers to stand in the middle of the yard with his back to us, and we have to hop over him. He bends down a little, lowers his head, rests his hands on his knees, and we hop over him one at a time. One takes a good run, and when one comes to him, one places both hands on his shoulders, raises oneself into the air, and over. I know exactly how it ought to be done. I take the run all right, and plant my hands on his shoulders, only I can't raise myself into the air. And if I do lift myself up a little way, I remain sitting on the soldier's neck, and were it not for his seizing me by the feet, I should fall and perhaps kill myself. Then the corporal and another soldier take hold of me by the arms and legs, and throw me over the man's head, so that I may see there's nothing dreadful about it, as though I did not jump right over him because I was afraid, while it is that my arms are so weak. I cannot lean upon them and raise myself into the air. And when I say so, they only laugh and don't believe me. They say, it won't help you, you will have to serve anyhow. When on the other hand it comes to theory, the corporal is very pleased with me. He says that except himself no one knows theory as I do. He never questions me now, only when one of the others doesn't know something, he turns to me. Well, Bloomin, you tell me. I stand up without hurrying, and am about to answer, 
but he is apparently not pleased with my way of rising from my seat, and orders me to sit down again. When your superior speaks to you, says he, you ought to jump up as though the seat were hot. And he looks at me angrily, as much as to say, you may know theory, but you're pleased to know your manners as well, and treat me with the proper respect. Stand up again, and answer. I start up as though I felt a prick from a needle, and answer the question as he likes it done, smartly, all in one breath, and word for word according to the book. He, meanwhile, looks at the primer to make sure I am not leaving anything out, but as he reads very slowly he cannot catch me up, and when I have got to the end he is still following with his finger and reading, and when he has finished he gives me a pleased look and says enthusiastically, right, and tells me to sit down again. Theory, he says, that you do know. Well, begging his pardon, it isn't much to know, and yet there are soldiers who are four years over it and don't know it then. For instance, take my comrade Osachok. He says that when it comes to theory he would rather go and hang or drown himself he says he would rather have to carry three pails of water than to sit down to theory. I tell him that if he would learn to read he could study the whole thing by himself in a week, but he won't listen. Nobody, says he, will ever ask my advice. One thing always alarmed me very much. However was I to take part in the manoeuvres? I cannot lift a single pud. I myself only weigh two pud and thirty pounds, and if I walk three versts my feet hurt and my heart beats so violently that I think it's going to burst my side. At the manoeuvres I should have to carry as much as fifty pounds weight and perhaps more—a rifle, a cloak, a knapsack with linen, boots, a uniform, a tent, bread and onions, and a few other little things, and should have to walk perhaps thirty to forty versts a day. But when the day and the hour arrived, and the command was given, forward march, when the band struck up and two thousand men set their feet in motion, something seemed to draw me forward, and I went. At the beginning I found it hard. I felt weighted to the earth. My left shoulder hurt me so, I nearly fainted. But afterwards I got very hot. I began to breathe rapidly and deeply. My eyes were starting out of my head like two cupping-glasses, and I not only walked, I ran, so as not to fall behind. And so I ended by marching along with the rest, forty versts a day. Only I did not sing on the march like the others, first because I did not feel so very cheerful, and second because I could not breathe properly, let alone sing. At times I felt burning hot but immediately afterward I would grow light, and the marching was easy. I seemed to be carried along rather than to tread the earth, and it appeared to me as though another were marching in my place, only that my left shoulder ached, and I was hot. I remember that once it rained a whole night long. It came down like a deluge. Our tents were soaked through and grew heavy. The mud was thick. At three o'clock in the morning an alarm was sounded. We were ordered to fold up our tents and take to the road again, so off we went.
It was dark and slippery. It poured with rain. I was continually stepping into a puddle and getting my boot full of water. I shivered and shook, and my teeth chattered with cold. That is, I was cold one minute and hot the next. But the marching was no difficulty to me. I scarcely felt that I was on the march, and thought very little about it. Indeed, I don't know what I was thinking about. My mind was a blank. We marched, and turned back, and marched again. Then we halted for half an hour, and turned back again. And this went on a whole night and a whole day. It turned out that there had been a mistake. It was not we who ought to have marched, but another regiment, and we ought not to have moved from the spot. But there was no help for it then. It was night. We had eaten nothing all day. The rain poured down, the mud was ankle-deep, there was no straw on which to pitch our tents, but we managed somehow. And so the days passed, each like the other. But I got through the manoeuvres, and was none the worse. Now I am already an old soldier. I have hardly another year and a half to serve, about sixteen months. I only hope I shall not be ill. It seems I got a bit of a chill at the manoeuvres. I cough every morning, and sometimes I suffer with my feet. I shiver a little at night till I get warm, and then I am very hot, and I feel very comfortable lying abed. But I shall probably soon be all right again. They say one may take a rest in the hospital, but I haven't been there yet, and don't want to go at all, especially now I am feeling better. The soldiers are sorry for me, and sometimes they do my work, but not just for love. I get three pounds of bread a day, and don't eat more than one pound. The rest I give to my comrade Ossetchok. He eats it all, and his own as well, and then he could do with some more. In return for this he often cleans my rifle, and sometimes does other work for me, when he sees I have no strength left. I am also teaching him and a few other soldiers to read and write, and they are very pleased. My corporal also comes to me to be taught, but he never gives me a word of thanks. The superior of the platoon, when he isn't drunk and he is in good humour, says you to me instead of thou, and sometimes invites me to share his bed. I can breathe easier there, because there is more air, and I don't cough so much either. Only it sometimes happens that he comes back from the town tipsy, and makes a great to-do. How do I, a common soldier, come to be sitting on his bed? He orders me to get up and stand before him at attention, and declares he will have me up for it. When, however, he is sobered down, he turns kind again, and calls me to him. He likes me to tell him stories out of books. Sometimes the orderly calls me into the orderly room, and gives me a report to draw up, or else a list or a calculation to make. He himself writes badly, and is very poor at figures. I do everything he wants, and he's very glad of my help, only it wouldn't do for him to confess it, and when I've finished he always says to me, if the commanding officer is not satisfied he will send you to fetch water. I know it isn't true. First, because the commanding officer mustn't know that I write in the orderly room. A Jew can't be an army secretary. 
secondly because he is certain to be satisfied. He once gave me a note to write himself, and was very pleased with it. "'If you were not a Jew,' he said to me then, "'I should make a corporal of you.' Still, my corporal always repeats his threat about the water, so that I may preserve a proper respect for him, although I not only respect him, I tremble before his size. When he comes back tipsy from town and finds me in the orderly room, he commands me to drag his muddy boots off his feet, and I obey him and drag off his boots. Sometimes I don't care, and other times it hurts my feelings. End of section 24 Military Service by Micha Yosef Bachevsky.